Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying the world of Jesus, and we hope to get you thinking about old stories in a new way. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Jericho Road. Uh, For the past few podcasts, we have been in a place very, very far from what I would call the world of Jesus, thinking about where Jesus lived, like Galilee or Jerusalem or Capernaum, anything like that, to places in Greece, Corinth and Philippi, which are geographically far from the world of Jesus, but then became the world of Jesus after a man named Paul visited them in the year 51. That's been our podcast, and we've been comparing the two cities of Philippi and Corinth. Today, I want to talk about sports in the context of both places. Paul was a sports fan. I'll show you how. First of all, I want you to look at this relief of wrestlers from the time of Paul. This is a Greco-Roman relief, and uh, wrestling was my son's favorite sport. I doubt if he would do it naked, uh, which is how they did it back then. Uh, but Paul was a sports fan, and and so am I. I can really relate to this podcast. It's it's fun to talk about. Any kid growing up in Alabama is a certain kind of sports fan, and that would certainly be college football. I remember as a child driving up the Bessemer Superhighway right about the fairgrounds when you're entering the city limits of Birmingham, and it was like the the yellow brick road going right up into the Emerald City, and there was this big sign with a picture of Coach Bryant looking like God himself and and a bag of potato chips on one side, Golden Flake, and a Coca-Cola bottle on the other, and it said, Great Pear, says the bear. And it it just made you just want to eat potato chips and drink Coca-Cola all the time. And at right in Sunday afternoons, you had the, the football shows, you had Bear Bryant and Suge Jordan, and you talked about college football year round and you agonized if your team lost. And so there was that there were those sports. But then there were other sports as a child too, because on Saturday afternoon we would watch the wide world of sports. And do you remember, do you remember the scene where that guy kind of falling down the falling down down the ski slope, some sort of ski jump, you know, some sport that Southern children don't understand, but he's just rolling. And so they talked about the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Well, the word agon within the word agony is a word that St. Paul would have used and St. Paul would have known because agon is a struggle or it's a contest. So agon is something that they knew and that they watched. And and a couple podcasts back, we talked about an event called the Isthmian Games, which was a biannual sporting event that was held in Corinth. And as Paul would have arrived in Corinth in the year 51 uh, and staying for a year and a half, he would have seen the Isthmian Games. They were dedicated to the god Poseidon. Uh, They were held uh, in the off years of the Olympiad. Uh, They would have wrestling and boxing and racing and javelin throwing and all kinds of stuff like that. And for that reason, Paul found it to be very, very comfortable to use sports analogies when he talked about the Christian faith and life. This is what he says in his first letter to the Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, beginning with the 24th verse. Do you not know that in a race the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, uh, Greek athletes would receive a little wilted leaf of uh, wreath, rather, of green things, I'm trying to say. But we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body to enslave it, so that after proclaiming to others myself, I should not be disqualified. 
He's talking about the the testing and the training it takes to have a Christian witness. And he says the same thing in his letter to the Philippians. So if Philippi and Corinth are very different places, and I'll say some more about that in a minute, they've got sports in common. So here, this is what he says in Philippians chapter 3, beginning with the 12th verse. Not that I've already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Now, if you were with me a podcast back, this looks a little like a contradiction. Philippians chapter 3 is a break in Paul's thought to the point that we think that his letter to the Philippians may be more than one letter, just sort of a compilation of ideas put together. And what Paul says at the beginning of Philippians chapter 3 is in effect this. We've been given a gift. Paul calls it the gospel. And the gospel is a one-way transaction. We're saved by grace. We're saved in time. And it makes us a family. And you can't take away from it. And you can't add to it. And you got to have all three. And listen to the past podcast. And I'll explain that a little further. But basically, right now, if you put the sports analogy on top of the gospel, it makes it sound like Paul's talking out of two sides of his mouth. I mean, if if grace is a one-way gift, then what's all this striving? What's all this competing? What's all this straining for the goal? Well, I've heard it said, and I think this makes makes perfect sense to me, that Christianity is the one path, it's the one world religion that you absolutely cannot do. Did you catch that? Christianity is the only one you cannot do. I'll offer you an analogy. Um, For those of you who live in Birmingham, we're a great food city, and we've got lots of of ethnic food, uh, lots of just great food, but we have lots of ethnic food, lots of cool ethnic groups that probably arrived because of originally because of the steel industry and now because of the medical industry. And I hang out with a bunch of guys from Yemen who run a kebab place down by the hospital, and they are so sweet. And, and I never fail every year to pray for these guys during Ramadan. And especially when Ramadan hits, you know, that holy month where they have to fast during the day and Ramadan hits in the summer months and and they've got to get up early in the morning, days are long, and they're working in there slinging kebabs and serving my lunch and they can't eat a thing until late and it's hot and they have to wait till it's dark and all that stuff. And I tell them all the time that I'm praying for them. And over the years, I've sort of become the chaplain to to a bunch of Yemeni kebab guys uh, and they, they really do appreciate it. And my point is this. Ramadan's hard to do, and it's hard to do when you're slinging shawarma and euros, but you can do it. Who can really follow the precepts of Jesus? Who can forgive 70 times 7? Who can be perfect as our Father is perfect? Who can always turn the other cheek? Who can always give the extra coat or walk the extra mile? You can't. But what Paul says here is that the gospel makes us free to try makes us free to try. And there's joy in the trying, joy in the competing, joy in the striving, joy in the reaching for the goal. How about this? Joy in the reaching for the wreath, uh, for the trophy. Even if we fall short, we know that God will be with us to pick us up. Do you remember the story of Derek Redman in the Olympics? It, It happened... Gosh, I'm trying to remember the time now. I think it was in the mid-90s. Uh, Derek Redmond was a British runner running a semifinal race, and he runs around the corner, and he, and he pops a hamstring, and he falls to the deck, 
And his dad runs out of the stands and picks him up. And he's because he sees his son crawling towards the finish line. He says, son, you don't have to do this. And he said, dad, I have to finish the race. And long after everyone else had had run and completed the race, Derek Redman and his father, uh, the child in his father's arms, uh, limp across the finish line. And the crowd goes wild. Faith is a lot like this, right? We know that even when we fall, we have a heavenly father to pick us up. Well, that's a sports analogy. I've got one a little closer to home that might help. Um, I'll show you a little movie from a drone shot over Lake Purdy. Just take a look at this for a second. I'm an oarsman. Okay, okay, I, I row a boat called a skull, a single skull. And look, I'm not I'm not the best at it. I mean, I'm still learning how to do it. I've been doing it for about five years. And there, there are a lot of people with a lot more grace and form than me. Still, that's cool to look at. I remember when that drone came over, it scared me. And then the guy sent me the movie, which is really pretty cool. It took a lot of effort to get to where I am even today. Uh, and I'll tell you the story. I, I saw someone sculling in the Northeast uh, years ago, and I always thought it was such a pretty sport. I wanted to try it. So I got on a boat and I fell off. And then I got on it again and I fell off again. And so I came back down to Birmingham and I saw that they were offering classes to learn to row classes at Lake Purdy. So I, I took a class and I fell off and then I fell off again and again and actually got really comfortable with falling off that skinny boat. Uh, but at some point I began to learn how to stay erect and how to pull the oars and how to turn the boat and how to 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 find my way around the lake and how to direct and all those things and, and how to get back on when I fell off. And just all those, all these rules that you had to learn. Eventually I got certified. I, I learned how to hold my hands and how to hang on to the oars. And my point is this, at some point I learned enough through failure that I learned how to fly. No. As you can see in that movie, uh, gosh, it's I've got trees and and flat water and and herons and eagles and jumping fish and all these things that you get to see when you row a boat. Uh, but I had to learn the rules first so that I could soar. I think the same happens with any sport, whether you're swinging a golf club or a baseball bat or a tennis racket or anything else. You have to learn the rules so that you can forget them so that you can fly. I think that a life in Christ is like this. I think that a life in Christ, what Paul says both to the Philippians and to the Corinthians, is that a life in Christ is agon. It, it is striving. It is failing. It is learning. And that message is for all of us. So yeah, lately I've been comparing Corinth and Philippi for you, and I hope that by now, if you've been listening to the podcast, you've really picked up that Paul's letter to the Philippians and Paul's two letters to the Corinthians are very, very different letters because they're very, very different people. In Philippi, they're not very learned, and they're not very sophisticated, and they're trying to please God, and they're trying to do right, and they're heroic in many ways. When Paul tells them to rejoice always, uh, they're doing it in a context where they might be beat up and sad, coming from Paul, who's probably beat up and sad in a Roman jail, and yet they're defiantly happy. That's that's one letter. That may be my favorite letter of all of them in the backs. And then in Corinth, they're smart, and many of them are pretty, and they're plenty rich, and they're educated, and plenty of them are on the top of the food chain. And so it's a very, very different letter. And yet, the gospel, Grace Time Family, right, don't add to it, gives us the freedom to try, the freedom to learn. The gospel seems to fit both places just the same. Uh, take, take a quick look with me at 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 1. Yeah, this is 1 Corinthians 13, the lesson we hear 
read at weddings all through the summer, but it's not about marriage. It's about life. It's about life in Christ. It's about this agon, this struggle, if you will, where we get the word, the agony of defeat. Um, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He's saying this to the smart people and the and the pretty people and the people who who seem to accomplish everything, the people who seem to win the race all the time, the people who have sort of got the world by the tail. If it doesn't have love in it, it doesn't have God in it. Now that translates. That translates to all of us. And so we can strive and we can learn knowing that if it doesn't have love in it, then we don't have God with us. Our, our striving, our striving is for something higher than us. I used to keep an, an ad on my bulletin board. I can't find it. And I love it. It was from the newspaper about 15 years ago. And it was it was a, a write-up on, on a new barbecue restaurant that had come to Birmingham and had this lovely woman with this big steaming plate of the best looking ribs you've ever seen. And she said, I always try to cook like I'm cooking for Jesus. Different woman, different context. Not sure that Jesus historically could have eaten those pork ribs, although he probably would have eaten them for her. Uh, But rather, she's always cooking as if she's cooking for Jesus. I'm always working as if I'm working for Jesus. We, We live as like we're living for Jesus. We run like we're running for Jesus. We raise children like we're raising children for Jesus. We serve like we're serving for Jesus. We take care of our senior citizens like we're taking care of Jesus. See how this works. We do everything in our own world, in our own context, our own age, like we're doing it for the Lord and the Lord will be with us. I've got a, this is a cute picture. This is called Family Church. I don't know where this church is. This is sort of some stock photograph, but there's a church out there named Family Church. You look at that. It looks like they got it going on. They got a band, they got a stage and a lot of people. Uh, This makes me laugh because I read somewhere recently that family churches aren't friendly. And someone did a study and the family churches are probably not the friendliest churches you want to visit. Now, the reason why I say this is because people misunderstand the meaning of family. When, when people call their church a family church, it means that they go to church to see the people they want to see, which means that if you're outside of the family, you're not welcome. Look, I see that here at St. Luke's. We do the best we can, but we're a big church, and people come to church, and they like to do the things they want to do. They they want to sit in the pew that they want to sit in, and they want to eat the cheese grits that they want to eat. And isn't it exciting that the world is coming back after this long year and a half, and people are so happy to do the things they wanted to do. It, at the time of this podcast, we have now taken the blue tape out of the church, and we're going to start singing again, and all that's going to be great. But what will happen, and what has happened, and I'll guarantee you will happen again, is that visitors will come or people will come and and they too will want to experience what we're experiencing. And people can get so busy being family with each other that they can render others invisible. I've seen it. I've seen people walk around trying to shake a hand or trying to get somebody to talk to them. And it's not that it's not that St. Lucas are unfriendly. It's just that they're not they're not paying attention. It takes work to love this way. It takes work to welcome a visitor. It takes work not to sit in your family pew. It takes work to pay attention to somebody sitting alone in the fellowship hall. It takes work to do hospitality. Paying attention takes work. And Paul says as much in Philippians chapter 3. 
Let's think back on something that I read to you in Philippians 3, 14. He said uh, that he is always straining for the prize, okay? Straining for the prize, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call in Christ Jesus. This is what he's always trying to do. And what's the prize? What's the prize? Well, by using a sports analogy, the prize is this, to be different, a new humanity, to put love in it so that it's got God in it. At the time of this podcast, we're uh, actually broadcasting this on Pentecost Sunday, which is that Sunday where we read Acts chapter 2. And it's that story that you all know. It's where, where the disciples are in a room and the fire, the Holy Spirit comes in, the wind comes in, and they got a little fire on their heads. And then these country boys from Galilee burst out in the streets speaking languages from places that they've never been before. And then these people from those places who are in town for the festival are hearing about God's deeds and power. And it's a miracle. And we tend to think of it as the miracle of, of, of communication, the miracle of uh, these people who've never been anywhere in the world suddenly speaking Cappadocian. But I want you to understand that that story of Pentecost is a very Jewish story. It was a Jewish festival, and these are Jewish people. And as such, they also had another story in the backs of their minds when this happened. They saw something unfolding. They saw God doing a new thing and, and refashioning or refitting or recrafting humanity for them and, and giving them back something that had been lost a long, 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 long time ago. Turn your Bible sometime back to Genesis chapter 11 and start with verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and few words. What happened in Genesis chapter 11 is they built a tower, the Tower of Babel. And in my Sunday school days, I was always taught that God punished them for building a tower up to the sky, trying to reach heaven. But if you read the text closely, they weren't punished for the tower. God didn't think much about the tower. He comes down on earth and looks up at the tower. He didn't care about the tower. What God cares about is that they're not obedient. God asked them to, to settle the whole earth and to be uh, in communion with God and with each other. Instead, they, they didn't settle the whole earth. They just settled it in a certain plain in a city. They built a city and they didn't move anywhere and they were disobedient. They didn't do what God asked them to do, which was to be a light of love throughout the whole globe. And so he divides them by languages, not as a punishment, but as a catalyst to get them out of their comfort zone and to bring them out uh, into the world, uh, which was always his intention. So what we have here in Acts chapter 2 with these country boys from Galilee speaking Cappadocian, is a restoration of people in communion with each other. A restoration of people in communion with each other and with God, and God will help them do it. God, God divided them, now God brings them together. God will enable us to be this new humanity that God wants us to be. Now, all that said, before I leave you this morning, I also want to correct a misperception. It's back in Philippians chapter 3, and it's verse 13. Paul says, Beloved, I do not consider that I made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward what lies ahead. Forgetting what lies behind. I think when I was a little boy, I was taught, or at least I certainly assumed, that Paul would forget about his old religion. He would start a new one. We thought that maybe Saul became Paul, and so, so that Saul, the Jewish person, became Paul, the Christian person. Look, Paul was always a Jewish person, and he always had two names. He always had his Hebrew name, and he always had his Roman name. And so he never left behind. He's not leaving behind his old religion. What he's leaving behind is his failure, 
What he's leaving behind is the fact that Paul had blood on his hands. Paul was a man who absolutely failed. He watched a young man named Stephen killed with rocks, and he was headed to Damascus to hurt more Christians and to put them into chains when God decided that he wanted it anyway, and Paul could start over. Paul knew that if God wanted him in Christ, if if God could save him, God could save anyone. And he had the courage to tell the world. He had the courage to try and to strive for the prize. Back when I was in seminary, they told me a story that that has always stuck with me in my ministry. It was a story of a, of a jaded minister who had done something something terrible in his youth, something to the point that it made him embittered and mean, and it always stayed with him. Something that brought him great shame, and he wore it like a cape, uh, and it it carried it just carried forth even into his ministry. And there was a woman in his church who prayed every day, and and it was rumored that she could even talk to God. And this minister walked up to the lady and, and in his own cynical way, because he'd just been hollowed out inside by whatever shame he'd been carrying around, he said, if you talk to God, if you talk to God, why don't you ask God what I did as a young man? And if you tell me, I'll believe you. That's the story that they tell. So the minister left her and then he saw her the next day praying in the church and he walked up to her, asked her the question, right? In, in a mean way, did, did God tell you? Did God tell you what I did? Uh, did did God answer, answer your, your prayer? And the woman said, well, in fact, he did. I asked God what you did as a young man. And, and then the minister just was just thunderstruck. He said, well, well what did God say? Well, what, did, what did you hear? And the woman said, God told me to tell you. I forgot. This is the gift of grace that enables us to try, enables us to fail, enables us to love, enables us to live, enables us to learn, enables us to form. We're not fully formed in anything. We continue to grow in wisdom and in grace as we strive for the finish line, knowing that when we fall, our Father will pick us up. So this leaves us with a question. The question is this, how has grace made us better? Well, thank you so much, friends. Look forward to you in another podcast as we look at Corinth and Philippi becoming the world of Jesus. And let's remember, never fear the agony of defeat. Thanks. Bye.